Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be able to be together this morning. Great to see so many folks here in person, but we also want to acknowledge that we have folks who are watching us at home online and even our friends at Forest Heights Long-Term Care. We are just excited to be able to celebrate uh, Easter Sunday together wherever you happen to be. So thank you for joining us. You know, a common question that might get asked at a job interview is, where do you see yourself in five years and the idea behind a question like this is to determine whether a candidate and an organization are headed in a similar direction. Now, if you're looking to hire somebody in the short term, and this, this summer we're looking to hire a, an intern for the months of uh, May through to August, and we're going to have an interview this week. Well, if you're looking to hire somebody like an intern on a short-term hire, what you're trying to figure out is whether or not in the short run there's some compatibility. In our case, you know, somebody's career trajectory, what they're hoping for, what they need to learn, what, they, what they're hoping to get out of that experience is something that we can provide, and whether or not it could work for us as an organization in the short term. Whereas in the long term, the idea idea is to see if the candidate will be somebody who fits into the bigger picture of an organization. Now, as you hopefully know, we have recently hired somebody to be our director of student ministries. Uh, her name is Alyssa. She'll be starting at the end of May. And during the process of this search, I've been asking a question like this, like, hey, where do you see yourself in, you know, five years or so? Where do you see yourself? And I was doing that until one day a candidate just laughed. And they said, to be honest, I don't know. That's why I applied for this job. I'm trying to figure it out. And I thought that was a great response, a very candid, it's the honest answer that we've been trained not to give in an interview setting. Um, because, like, you know, how many of us really have that kind of certainty about what's going to happen in our lives? I mean, in our own lives, we feel uncertainty all the time, don't we? I mean, I can't tell you over the past year how many of our family plans have been undone because somebody got a cold. I mean, for us as our family this year, all of our plans seem to be tentative or aspirational at best at points. And that's really minor. That's relatively minor. I mean, it, it, there can be big things that change that we just can't possibly see. You know, the sudden change in the health of a loved one might mean that our plans for our lives suddenly have to be redirected as we are now the caregivers for that person. Or the change in our employment can suddenly change the direction of our lives. Or maybe there's a lack of clarity as to what we're going to do after school. I mean, there's so many areas of life that has uncertainty, and as much as we hate it, uncertainty is just a part of life. And uncertainty is very much a part of the, the story of Good Friday and Easter. It's been what, what we've been talking about. And on Friday, we discussed how uncertainty led the disciples to being afraid and, and ultimately abandoning Jesus. Well, this morning, we again meet the disciples in that place of fear. But we're going to see that in the end, that while things are perhaps still uncertain, that Jesus replaces their uncertainty with joy. And so our big idea that we'll be exploring this morning is that Jesus can transform the fear of our uncertainty into the joy of purpose. And to help us with this, we're going to look at, at Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be reading starting at verse 36. And can I just say in this quiet moment, I'm loving that I'm hearing the kids worshiping underneath us this morning. So if you're wondering, is there a dull rumble? There is. And that's because right now there is a party happening underneath us, and that is a good thing, okay? So that's fantastic. All right, Luke chapter 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. 
Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they, were still, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this was what, what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on, on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them, and he was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Our first point this morning is that Jesus meets us in the uncertainty of our emotions. You know, this passage begins with Jesus' followers gathered together, and what they're talking about is they're talking about the testimony of two of their friends who have just gotten back from a village called Emmaus. And their friends have told them this story about how they had been traveling home, and uh, after the events of, of the crucifixion, they've been traveling home, and suddenly somebody had appeared to them, just talking with them. And when they sat down and they had a meal, they realized that this person was Jesus. And so they rushed back to tell their friends. Now this story uh, came after the disciples had heard another story. That they, they, there were the testimony of at least three women who had visited the empty tomb on the resurrection day, and they didn't believe them. They didn't believe the testimony of these women. And now they are hearing this testimony of these other people who came back, and so they're in shock. Maybe Jesus wasn't dead like they thought he was. And in the middle of their confusion, that's when Jesus shows up. Now, I love the honesty in how Luke tells this story because it seems so obvious. Luke tells us that when they saw Jesus, they were startled and they were frightened. Like, of course they were, right? Like, what, how else would you respond? And in their confusion, they are trying to make sense of what it is that they are seeing. And the conclusion, the only conclusion they can come up with is, it's a ghost. It's got to be a ghost. We saw Jesus die. There's somebody who looks like Jesus. It's got to be a ghost. That's the only thing that can make sense, right? And Jesus understands their emotions, and he responds to them with gentleness. And in fact, I imagine Jesus kind of chuckling to himself here, saying, ghost, you say, why don't you just reach out here and touch me? I'm right here, guys. And then he goes on to show them his hands and his feet, which of course bear the scars of the cross. And in this response, something starts to change in them. Their fear starts to melt away and is replaced with joy and amazement that maybe, just maybe, this might actually be Jesus. But they're still not sure if they actually believe him. And so what Jesus does next is he asks for something to eat, and they give him this piece of fish, and he eats it right in front of them, proving that he's not just a product of their imagination or some sort of disembodied spirit, but he's interacting with them and their world just like they would. You know, I think it's, it's interesting to just uh, to pause and to reflect on the fact that when Jesus shows up to his disciples, he doesn't just show up and start listing reasons why they should believe him. Like, he does give some reasons, but it's a tangible interaction that he's having with them. 
You know, as emotional people, we need to experience things that connect with our emotions. And in this passage, before Jesus goes on to teach, and he's going to go on to teach, he shows up in some really tangible ways. They could see Jesus. They could touch Jesus. They could witness him doing things that they, normal things that they themselves would do. And all of this experience happens when their emotions are just all over the place. You know, when we're struggling or when somebody we know is struggling, what we don't need is a list of truths. But what we long for is presence. What we long for is for our tangible needs to be met, for someone to give us a hug, for someone to give us practical, need, uh, pra- practical help for the things that we need. And that's what will make a difference in our lives, and that's what makes a difference in the lives of others. You know, part of what Jesus is going to tell his disciples about or tells his disciples about in this passage is that they're going to experience a gift from the Father. They're going to experience the Holy Spirit who will give them power from on high. And what Jesus is doing is he's preparing, to, preparing them for the fact they are going to be equipped for ministry, to continue in his ministry. And in 1 Corinthians, as the Apostle Paul talks about what it means to be Jesus' followers, he uses the imagery of a human body to describe how each follower of Jesus is connected and is a part of something that's bigger than themselves that he calls the body of Christ. And where this connects to what we're talking about this morning is that as followers of Jesus, we have been empowered to be the tangible, embodied, resurrected life of Jesus for other people to bring that life into the lives of others. And as lofty as that sounds, I think that the tangibleness, and I have no idea, is tangibleness even a word, but the tangibleness of what Jesus does for his followers can help us see what this looks like. That when followers of Jesus offer words of encouragement to somebody who's discouraged, or take the time to have an unrushed visit with someone who is lonely, or when they offer to do groceries or to watch somebody else's kids, that what happens is that Jesus shows up in these type of experiences, that Jesus himself is present. And so this morning, I would invite us to reflect on these two questions, and that is, how has the presence of others helped us see Jesus in our own lives? And how are we bringing the presence of Jesus into the lives of others? You know, when we are in a difficult season, Jesus shows up when others show up for us. And when others are in a hard season, Jesus shows up when we show up. There's something tangible here that is to be experienced. And in that experience, we experience the embodied, resurrected life of Jesus. This week, um, I was trying to, to print off an order of service for our Sunday service here, uh, using the program that we use here as a church to plan our services. But the thing is, I couldn't get that darn thing to spit out the type of order of service that our, with the information that our worship teams wanted, what they're used to having. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> with the exception of the tie, that's pretty accurate, actually. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get it to figure out. I tried everything that I knew, but I couldn't generate what I wanted. And so on Tuesday, Pastor Terry was in the office, and I asked him for some help, and he showed me this one drop-down menu that I'd never seen before. Apparently, it's always been there, but I've never noticed that it even existed. And as soon as he showed me that, suddenly I could not only find the things that I wanted to do, but I discovered that there was a whole range of other things that this program could do that I wasn't aware of before. And it started with Terry showing me something that previously I'd missed out on. I just hadn't even noticed. You know, sometimes we need people to help us see familiar things in a different light. 
And when they do, new possibilities become available to us. This is what we see Jesus doing, in his, doing for his disciples in this passage as he takes the time to help them understand the scriptures that they knew in a new light that would help them understand his death and his resurrection. And so our second point this morning is that Jesus meets us in the uncertainty of our minds. You know, verse 41 reminds us that the disciples were having trouble making sense of what they, what they were experiencing. And knowing this, Jesus takes the time to explain his death and his resurrection and how it wasn't a surprise. But it was a part of God's plan right from the beginning and could be found in the words of the Jewish scriptures that they would have held on to. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus tells them. It would have been really nice if he did, but he didn't. But just like Jesus showed up for those two, uh, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he, sh- he showed them how the words of Scripture pointed to his death and resurrection, he does that for his followers here too. And so Jesus, in his teaching, gives them a new way of understanding their circumstances and a new way of understanding what it was that God was doing. In other words, this isn't purely an emotional experience, but here are some of the reasons that you can believe that I'm right here in front of you. Yeah, you could be happy that I'm here, but here's some things that you can think about that helps you understand that this experience of me standing in front of you, Peter, is real. You know, the story of the resurrection is one that some of us are going to have a hard time believing because it goes totally and utterly counter to what we understand to be true. And so if that represents you this morning, you're not alone. But what if there were some objective reasons for us to believe that this might have indeed happened? And so this morning, I want to briefly take a look at the opening of the book of, of, of Luke here. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Luke writes this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those from, from, from the, sorry, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most ex- excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught." You know, Luke tells us right from the beginning here that many people have decided to document what they had experienced, what they had experienced and what they had seen and witnessed Jesus doing. Not many, no, sorry, not a few, but many. And this is significant because it tells us that, that Luke and Matthew and Mark and John, the people who wrote those books, they were not alone. And that this was not just an organized, uh, organized effort by a few people to fabricate, fabricate a story. In fact, the reality is that the authors of the Gospels would have had no way of knowing that one day we would be holding in our hands this collection that we call the Bible. They wouldn't have known that. They wouldn't have expected that. In fact, the the process of forming what we know as the Bible didn't happen until a few centuries later when after the church emerged from a period of persecution, they assembled the writings that over time they recognized to be sacred and meaningful. They kind of said all these, these writings had meant something to us and they've helped us. Let's pull them all together. And Luke tells us that the accounts of, of the life and teachings of Jesus that, were, that, that, that he gathered were from eyewitnesses. That is to say that these are stories from people who saw Jesus, who who witnessed Jesus, who experienced Jesus, who followed Jesus. And what he had done is he'd undertaken the task of, of, of interviewing these eyewitnesses in an effort to pull together the most accurate account of Jesus' life that he could. 
Now, here's the thing about the ancient world and what we know about people who live in the ancient world is that most of what we know was not written in the lifespan of ancient figures or even within the life, lifetime of the people who actually interacted with them. Most of what we know about the lives of ancient people were written well after they were dead and well after those who were there with them also had passed. Usually what had happened is somebody along the way um, would, would decide that they would gather the, the stories that had been passed down and they'd gather them and they'd write them, write them down. Um, and, you know, what happens with, over time with stories is we lose some details and some things get embellished, but this is what the practice. This was the common practice. But what Luke and the others did was different. See, they recognized that Jesus was special. And within 40 years, within the lifespan of, of people who have had firsthand experience with Jesus, they recorded the story of Jesus' life, his teachings, his death, and even his resurrection. And this was not common in the first century. And it certainly would not have been common to have recorded the story of somebody who was a part of the peasant class like Jesus was. And not only that, the reality is that even for really famous people like, like Herod the Great, what was recorded, what got recorded, wasn't a whole lot. But in our Bibles, we have not just one biography, we have four. And they tell us about the same person, they tell us his story, they tell us about his suffering, they tell us about his death, and they all talk about his resurrection. And because the story was considered to be credible, the, the story of Jesus spread. Now, I don't think Luke, Luke would have expected that today people would be reading what he wrote. That's not what he set out to do. Rather, he wrote this gospel and the book of Acts for an early believer named Theopolis. Um, so that Theophilus could know that what he believed had some backing, had some credibility to it. There was this, you know, Theophilus was somebody who, who said to Luke, he actually commissioned Luke, he said, I, can you go and do some research for me? I can't do this. I'm paying you to go, to go interview people to record this story of Jesus so that I could know what I believe is actually true. And all Theophilus would have had to have done is to walk around. It wouldn't have taken much to fact check this because there were people walking around that would have been in these circles that had spent time with Jesus. And so if it had been a made-up story, there would have been folks who would have been able to poke holes in it for them. You know, for us this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we can do so with a sense of confidence that the historical record is reliable. And if the record is reliable, what it means is that we can take seriously the, the fact that this first century Jewish rabbi not only lived and, and not only was an influential teacher, but there were people who were witnesses to his death and the fact that three days later, he was physically alive. And if that's true, what else could that mean for us? If that's true, what else could that mean to, for us? You know, one of the things about being young is that the future can seem like it, has, it is full of infinite possibilities and opportunities, can't it? But as great as that might sound for some of us, for others of us, what we might find ourselves feeling is we might find ourselves feeling afraid, right? I mean, what happens if we make the wrong decision? What happens if we choose the wrong college program? What happens if that job that we take is actually a miserable job and we hate it and it's a dead end? What happens then? And because there are so many unknowns, we can find ourselves afraid to take any step forward because we don't want to get it wrong. But the problem with living in fear is that it can hold us back, and it can keep us from exploring what our sense of purpose ultimately is. 
You know, I think that that's, that, that it, I think that it's understandable that, that Jesus' disciples were wrestling with uncertainty and fear. And you know what? Even after a few days after what we just read this morning, a few days after this, we find them hiding, unsure of what was to come, until the Holy Spirit shows up, and our passage this morning points us towards that moment. And so our third and our final point this morning is that an experience with Jesus can replace our fear with the joy of new purpose. You know, through Jesus' presence and through his teaching, we see how the fear of the disciples is replaced by joy. In verse 52, we see them returning to Jerusalem with, with great joy and continuing to praise God. You know, they didn't have it all figured out, and they didn't have to. But what they knew was that Jesus wasn't gone like they once thought that he was. What looked like defeat was actually victory, and so their fear melted away and was replaced by joy. And in this joy, they were given a new purpose that would be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that they could be a part of sharing Jesus with others. The Great Commission that we find at the end of the book of Matthew runs parallel to what we've just read this morning. And in the Great Commission, Jesus gives them the mission and the purpose of continuing to do the things that he did. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then he says, so go and do what I've been doing. As we get to the book of Acts, which is the second part of Luke's research project for Theophilus, Luke tells a story about how these early Christ followers lived out their new calling to to continue Jesus' mission in ways that made the culture around them sit up, take notice, and want to know more. All under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus tells his followers was coming in our passage this morning. You know, as, as a church community... We continue to have the purpose and the calling that Jesus gave his first disciples, and we are equipped by the Holy Spirit to go and to do it. Here at West Heights, we we talk about how we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. That's our way of wording, you know, Jesus' purpose for us as, as part of his church, that we are here to help people find and follow Jesus. And the vision for how we go about this is to be a vibrant community of followers of Jesus that serves our neighbors by meeting needs and showing love. This is how we express why we exist and who we want to be in, in accomplishing our purpose as a church community. You know, the reality is, is that we live in a culture, we live in a society that increasingly does not know Jesus nor share our story or even support our story as followers of Jesus. And for some of us, that reality could be really, really scary. And the thing about fear is that fear can hold us back from living out who Jesus has called us to be. But this isn't who we want to be as a church community. Instead, we want to be looking for ways to embrace the joy of our purpose, recognizing that we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to engage our neighbors in ways that will cause them to sit up, take notice, and wonder what it is about us that sends us out to do the things that we do. This week, I, I met somebody from our, our community who's doing work in our community, and they came over, and they wanted to know who we were and what we're about as a church community. And so I, I talked to them about our Halloween for Hunger food drive initiative and how this year we gathered over 3,400 meals worth of food and donations to help those dealing with food insecurity in Waterloo Region. And then, because we happen to be meeting in the portable, and there's a, there's a giant wall. If you've been in the portable, there's a giant wall of diapers. There's like 12,000 diapers sitting in the portable right now. 
And they said, what is that? And I said, well, let me tell you about this cool thing that we did this winter where we collected diapers because we know that the food distribution program that happens at the community center, that that's something they always run out of. And we know that over 100 families regularly access that support. And they said, wow. And then we talked a little bit about the neighborhood cleanup project that we're hoping to do in a couple weeks and how this is just one way that we are, are hoping that we can come alongside our, our neighborhood and, and show that we are invested and we love the neighborhood that we are a part of. See, there, these are just opportunities for us to embody Jesus in a way that is recognizable and in a way that is tangible. And let me just say, if you haven't heard much about our neighborhood cleanup, can I encourage you to think about signing up for this? Because we want this to be a big deal. We want this to be something that when we come together, we are making an impact on this neighborhood. Because we we just don't have a piece of property here. We want to love this neighborhood. We want to say we are invested in the well-being of this community. And one of the ways that we can do this is by cleaning it up. And so the plan is simple. We're going to come here on Saturday the 22nd, and that space of, I think that's behind us, um, the community center, the green space between us and the community center, there's a creek there, there's a path there, there's a field there. We're going to clean it up. We're just going to pick up the trash, and it's a way that we can say, we can come together and we can work together to say, we are living out our purpose and our calling to embody Jesus in this neighborhood. But we need people to do it. And so there's lots of ways that we can get involved. We need people to provide snacks. Okay, that sounds kind of, it just sounds fun now, right? We provide snacks because, and we need people who are willing to be our refreshment team because everything's just an excuse to hang out and have fun, really, okay? Garbage just is a part of this. And we want to have an opportunity for us to have coffee beforehand and afterwards to be able to get to know each other after we kind of do our, our work to be able to re- be refreshed and enjoy the time together. And so we're looking for people to help us with food and to help us put the refreshments on. That's something that maybe you might want to be a part of. And then, of course, we are looking for a small army of people. It can be big people, it can be little people, it can be families, it can be friends, it can be singles, it can be whatever, that can actually just walk up and down with gloves and everything and just pick up the trash and the recycling that we find. See what we can do. Blitz it in an hour. Let's see what we can do together. You know, as followers of Jesus, because Jesus is alive, we've been given the purpose of continuing his ministry, and we do this together. Let's do this together. This morning, I was reading through the, uh, the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, and I, I found myself re- reflecting on a, a verse that comes out of Matthew, how Matthew talks about, uh, describes the resurrection scene. And so I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 28, and it's not going to be on the screen, so you'll just have to listen, to listen to me here. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook, and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. By the way, can I just say that I love the fact that the men passed out and the women are still standing there? The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. They're still afraid though, okay? Um, For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And this is the line that stood out to me. 
So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. You know, there's a tension there, afraid yet filled with joy. You know, uncertainty is a part of life. We get that. And sometimes uncertainty makes us, makes us afraid at times. But we can have joy in that. Here are these women who went to the tomb expecting one thing and found something completely different, and they didn't pass out like everybody else did. But their fear, in their fear, they find joy because something is now possible that they thought was impossible. And so I encourage us in this season to explore that joy. And in exploring that joy, to find our purpose and calling as followers of Jesus because Jesus is alive. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that we get to celebrate you and life. And Lord, we, we this morning just ask that you would speak to us in the uncertainty that perhaps we feel, the uncertainty that we live in, Lord. And Lord, that we would, would know and experience your presence in really practical and tangible ways. Lord Jesus, help us to be there for those who need to experience you. And Lord, help us to have our eyes open to how you show up in our stories. Lord, faith sometimes is hard. Lord, would you strengthen our faith? Would you give us moments where, we, where uh, our, our wavering faith is, feels supported and, and, is, and is built up? And Lord, would you help us to, to know and to live in the calling that you have given us as your people? Lord, I'm grateful for this church I'm grateful for the folks that are here, for my brothers and sisters in faith, Lord, for the ways in which we get to come together to support each other, to cheer one another on, and to be a part of this thing that you are doing. Lord, it's a privilege. Lord, help us. In your name we pray. Amen.